Welcome to the HMO Property Podcast, where we connect, educate, and inspire the UK's HMO property community. So stop what you're doing, sit back, relax, and enjoy the story. Up HMO Nation and welcome to another episode of the HMO Property Podcast with me, Rupert Wallace, in association with HMOHub.co.uk. In this episode, we're interviewing successful HMO property investor, Nick Warwork. Nick has been investing in HMOs for some 20 years now. He's completed over 25 HMO projects and he currently houses over 200 HMO tenants. So let's jump straight in. Nick, welcome to the show. Good morning, Rupert. How are you? I'm good. Great to have you with us. Nick, before we dive into the details, tell us about yourself. Give us your journey and your background before you started off in HMO property. Okay. Yeah, crikey, if I can remember that far back. Um, I started off, I did an audio technology degree at uni because I was sort of into bands and music and I didn't know what I wanted to do. I had no real direction in life. I was one of those kids that was sort of unsure as to where I wanted to go. I was sort of clearly a natural entrepreneur. I was you know, selling stuff out of my garage as a kid and doing all those kind of uh, sort of you know, dealing and trading and negotiating with people naturally as a kid. And I really enjoyed all that kind of stuff. But I went into audio technology because it was kind of a technical based degree that gave me that I thought would give me um, you know, a good platform to go into a multitude of different um, sort of jobs when I came out. So that was the choice. Really enjoyed the degree. Quite a lot of techie stuff. So there was kind of, you know, like I think with everything, you know, you enjoy half of it and you hate half of it. So that was my uni life. But I had good fun, got out on my own, learned to live on my own. I went up to Salford in Manchester for that, which was a bit of a dive, to be honest. So I kind of got a bit streetwise as well, I think, learning to, um, you know, the types of people that can be in this world, the, the unsavoury types. But overall, Manchester as a whole was an amazing place to go to uni. So um, made the most of that and really enjoyed it. First role really went into IT and I kind of learned, did some IT courses in my summer where other people were off enjoying their summers and, and getting drunk and, and whatever. They were kind of, um, you know, lost if you will not knowing what they want to do i kind of decided it was you know good a good way to go make some money i was kind of like what, what are the you know, industries at that time and this was i graduated in i graduated in 2000 that was when i bought my first property which i, I shortly after turned into an hmo but um yeah you know it was a high ticket uh, career at that point and i was like that looks fantastic let's let's try and get into that so i did some cisco courses microsoft certification got my first job higher paid than anywhere else on my entire course um then moved into the financial IT world and subsequently into sitting on a, a kind of on a trade floor for an investment bank. I worked for Lehman Brothers before they went under for a couple of years. I worked for Reuters. I worked for the Nasdaq Stock Exchange, all up in the city. So I kind of got a taste for people making a, a lot of money, doing extremely well. I was in that buzz of, uh, you know, hard work, hard work ethic um, and people that were driven and ambitious. And I guess that I saw some of that and I sort of like, I want a piece of this money, you know, all this huge amount of wealth flowing through the stock markets that we saw traded every day. Um, and it, it, it kind of, I guess, set in my mind now, looking back at it, it reset my 
level for what is, you know, a, a lot of money and a lot of wealth. And I think possibly that, you know, has, has shaped where I've gone in the future. Um, so, yeah, I guess kind of turned from audio technology kind of stuff into IT into stock market related products and running the electronic uh, software and, and running the business um, element of a number of products inside the bank as a product manager. So, yeah, interesting kind of path before I got going, I guess. Give us some uh, some Lehman Brothers stories, mate. <laughs> you, work, you want some juicy gossip, do you, Rupert? Hell yeah. <laughs> Crikey, you know what? I, you know, I hate to disappoint, but juicy stories. You know, it was just, it was just massive work ethic. To be honest, you know, you see these stories of everyone going out partying, and yeah, there's good nights out after work, but it's not kind of what the movies make out. You know, it's just bloody hard work. You turn <laughs> up at seven in the morning, you leave at seven at night, and you're the first, last person in, the first person out. You know, and you feel bad. It's that ethic of like, who can stay in the office the latest to kind of impress their boss, and you daren't leave before your boss leaves. So. It's um it's a bit of a weird culture. Um, it's one that I enjoyed for a short amount of time, but you can see why people burn out in the city. It's just hardcore. You know, you're on the tube for two hours each day um, or more, uh, and when trains mess up, you're kind of sat there in the rat race. Hard, you know, this is hardcore rat race I was in. You know, this wasn't a nine to five job in your local town, and then you're, you're 15 minutes back home. This was. You know, I lived in Reading at the time for a few for a few of those years before I um, actually moved to London nearer because I couldn't take that commute. You know, you're talking two hours each way on an average day plus a 12 hour, you know, 11 to 12 hour working day. Um, you know, I hit rock bottom in that rush in that in that rat race when I was starting at the six o'clock shift at Nasdaq, Nasdaq Europe Stock Exchange. And I'd have to leave home at like three thirty in the morning to get in, you know, in time to get the whole exchange running from a kind of software and uh, systems point of view. So I enjoyed the responsibility. You know, you're kind of like the only guy there on the early shift starting everything. So that was kind of cool. Massive responsibility at a young age. Um, but also, you know, massively locked into the rat race and hard work working for someone else for what I look back on as a very small amount of money. Um wouldn't, wouldn't go back, mate. Wouldn't go back. No, for sure. <laughs> for sure. Um, so just tell us how you actually got into the world of HMO property investing from that point, Nick. Well, uh, to be honest, I'd love to tell you that it was, you know, extremely well planned. And it was, you know, something that I'd built up to for many years. But the reality is it wasn't. Um, I bought my first house in 2000, which ultimately was my first investment. I very At that time, you know, this was eight years before 2008, the main crash, and actually um, property was doing really well. So I was like, I know I need to buy property. So I took out a 15 grand loan, um, a graduate loan, took out another I think, 20 grand student loan out of uni as a like graduate style loan. So I already had all the student debt of, I don't know, 15, 20 grand. Took out another 20, yeah, 25 grand, and that put a deposit down in this first house because I knew I had to buy this house. You know, the markets were doing well. Um, it paid off, and within a couple of years, refinanced that site, paid off all my student loans and the deposits. You know, it was rocketing up, doing really well house prices. Um, so I was kind of debt free within, I don't know, two or three years of, of leaving uni. Um, bought myself a nice car and was doing really well. So it sort of worked. And from there, I went on and bought um, an individual HMO in Reading. I was based in Reading. My first job out of uni was back down in Reading. That's what brought me to this area. And I'm still here today. 
Um, and yeah, bought a second HMO and then a third and then a couple of flats in London and kind of over the next few years, just built a portfolio while still working for people, um, you know, on sort of contracts and, um, you know, a bit, bit of work for Lehman Brothers and stuff. Did a couple of years with them, I think it was. Um, so yeah, I built up a small portfolio in the background and then just bought, built it to a point where I could replace my income. You know, I think a goal for a lot of people and a lot of people I'm mentor that looking to get into property it's all about replacing that income and that's a that's the first big goal to achieve is to earn enough from your investments that it replaces your income you can have the choice the freedom um to leave that job and rely on that and manage it and then and grow that and that's that's what i did i got a handful of properties up and running income generating hmos are obviously extremely high yield um and and great return if you pick in the right area we've always done the young professional market so um that's been a market that's always done really well you know the first time buyer age is up in the mid 30s i think somewhere now i don't know if you know the exact year quoted at the moment but you know mid 30s is the first time buyer age so everyone's renting below that you know not everyone but a big chunk of the market's renting and need good quality professional accommodation i mean if you do a well-run hmo that's presented to a high standard, almost a corporate let standard. It ticks that market really, really well. And the demand is there and, it, and it's still increasing. So really, you were an accidental landlord, but was there, uh, to, as in to begin with, and it grew from there, but was there anything holding you back from getting into HMO property? Or was it just an unknown? No, yeah, I guess what held me back was I was living in the property. So I was concerned. Um, what happened, actually, I was with my partner at the time, um, and we split up. So I was like, how am I going to pay this mortgage on my own? So I actually became, I, I, was, an, I was a purposeful investor in it. I knew that first house. I know your own home is a liability. It's not an investment. I knew that. But we're in a market in 2000 where the market was increasing so much. Buying your own home was an, well, was an investment because you were increasing that equity so much. So um, there's a bit of a fine balance there. And I know, um, you know your own home isn't supposed to be classed as a liability and 99% of the time it's not. But in this scenario, it got me out of all my student debt, paid off my debts that bought the house. Um, so actually it was actually kind of worked out as an investment as well as a home. But I then um, split up with my partner. How am I going to pay this mortgage and all these bills, which was at the time about £800 a month. Um, and I, you know, what was holding me back was, was letting someone into my home as a paying lodger. You know, that first room was the hardest room I ever let. And as soon as I did that, and let's say six months down the line from doing that, I mean, that that was transformative because I realized, um, you know, at that time I could pick my tenants very carefully. Obviously, I wasn't renting, you know, to quite so many people. I didn't have to be quite as picky. So I was very picky. Um, I'm best friends with the guy that moved in already today, one of my best friends. Uh, the second tenant moved in with one of my best friends today. So actually I formed a really cool little house with, couple of guys um and it really worked out from a living point of view but that was what held me back was that first room like giving my privacy away my space my home to a stranger was really weird um, and i don't think that has to be the position for everyone but it's a blooming good way of getting started um with low risk because your own rent and bills are covered so within these two rooms the entire rent and bills have been covered i then converted a third room which was my study moved my study kind of into a you know, garage, half garage conversion off the kitchen, rented that out. So I was then sort of in profit by a few hundred pounds a month, then converted the integral, integral garage and kitchen, uh, actually converted the kitchen more recently in the last couple of years um, uh, and brought the kitchen into a big lounge. So it's a lounge, a big lounge, dining room, kitchen area, big communal room. So now it's a five bed house. It was a three bed, it's now five beds. Um, and I said, it makes me probably, probably about 1700 quid a month 
net profit after bills and um, uh, bills and mortgage and stuff, you know, before tax. But that's good money for a little small four bed that I bought for one hundred and thirty-seven thousand in Reading. I think they valued it recently at four fifty. So you know that was in in two thousand. So in twenty years, it's easily more than doubled. Um, so that's kind of the power of property, really. And that first property I still own today, I've kind of intentionally not sold it because that's almost like a legacy. That's my that's my story that I'm telling you now. It's really cool to go to this property and see it and know that's where the journey started, see the room that I used to live in and, um, you know, I guess be proud of that kind of journey that I've gone on to, you know, moving up to developing, you know, blocks of studio apartments, which are now sort of mega HMOs, as I call them. Um, so yeah, kind of, kind of, uh, interesting falling into it, but sort of knowing what I was doing at the same time. <laughs> Sorry, that was a long answer. No, it's, a good, it's a good answer. It actually leads nicely onto the next question, which is, a you know, talking us through your first HMO purchase. So just go into a bit more detail about, um, that one in particular. Um, you bought it for 137 grand. It was a three bed. You converted it into a four bed. Um, three did bed. you refinance it straight away? Uh, you know, what was the gross rental back then? And then give us some figures about what it generates now in terms of gross rental. Yeah, absolutely. Um, I'm going to pull up some figures whilst I, if I can find them as we're talking. But um, at the time, yeah, three bed. So, you know, the room rental market in Reading at the time was kind of renting rooms for about 400 to 450, that kind of level. Um, I think an ensuite would be going for like 500 pounds. Um, I refinanced actually before turning it into an HMO. Um, so I actually refinanced it within within a couple of years. It had gone up so much that I managed to release that deposit that I put back in and repay those um, those bad debts, which is the higher interest uh, personal loans I took out to buy that first property. I wouldn't advocate that as a route for, for everyone, by the way. I think that's a very high-risk strategy, and it, it worked for me because it was in a really high-rising market. Um, I think in today's market where the capital growth is more subdued, um, you need to be looking much longer term and actually taking on uh, you know, expensive debt, um, which might be termed as bad debt, whether it's credit cards, personal loans, those that kind of high interest debt, um, at risk on your personal name, high risk strategy today, because you're not going to be able to pay that back as quickly, um, unless maybe you're developing the property. Um, converting to an HMO does help, as, as we both know, that will increase the income by changing the use. So, you know, HMOs are one asset in, in property where you can add quite a lot of value, certainly investment value, by changing the use and renting out the rooms but yeah so, so we were talking three rooms at let, let, let's say it's 500 quid a room for ease of maths we, we don't need to be too specific bringing in sort of 1500 pounds a month gross there the the mortgage was the mortgage and bills about 800 i think it was um so i was making sort of 700 pounds a month quite quickly um converted the into a garage to get a fourth bedroom um and more recently converted the, the kitchen into a bedroom and moved the kitchen into a larger communal room. So we've got five rooms now. We're making what two and a half grand now. Um two and a half grand gross rent at the moment. The mortgage has gone down to three hundred pounds a month with the interest rates. So what we're at two thousand two hundred before bills. Let's say the bills are five hundred five hundred quid. We're at, we're at the seventeen hundred a month net profit that I mentioned a minute ago. So it's it's a lot of money for a little house. <laughs> Not a bad first deal, eh? Nick, since you've started to invest in HMOs, how has your life changed? Changed dramatically for the better. Um, I would definitely say property as an asset class is an incredible asset class and one that should be taken very seriously. There's plenty of pitfalls, so it's not about jumping in. It's about working with the right people, working with the right teams, getting your education up to 
the right level. You know, I really believe in this kind of educational funnel. Um, and that's why we have, um, you know, people like yourself doing amazing work and educating people on, on, the, on the Internet and giving them free or cheap resources. Um, we have a site called propertyforum.com does a similar thing, you know, educates people in property. People can go on and chat and interact with people. That's the kind of free level of education, you know, that's freely available on the Internet. You then kind of drill down to, you know, ebooks, free ebooks, cheap ebooks, you then into sort of paid books. Uh, I'm not going to pitch it, but there's my book. Um, <laughs> I'm sure we'll get onto that in a minute, Rupert. Um, you know, and then it's like, you know, a little bit of money, 10, 20 pounds to learn. I've bought everyone's book, I've bought all my peers' books, I bought every entrepreneur's book going to learn the trade. Um, and then it's into some kind of, you know, the right paid courses, and there's, you know, good operators and bad operators. Um, good mentors, bad mentors, that kind of stuff. So yeah, it's about educating really, isn't it? And, and making sure you pick up everything you can pick up, you know, becoming a sponge. Yeah. I think I went I mean, a little but, bit off there. What was yeah, the original but, question? <laughs> but, but it was about how HMOs, operating HMOs and investing in HMOs has changed your life. And that is part of the journey, what you're describing now is because, yeah. you know, be, being, uh, being open-minded enough to realize that you don't know it all and that, um, shortcutting those pitfalls, those pains, those mistakes that other people have already made and paying for them is a very good idea. Absolutely. I mean, if I could, you know, if I have one hour with a new investor, you know, an investor that's got maybe a couple of buy-to-let properties, a couple of HMOs, they want to accelerate their growth. You know, I have people coming to me that I mentor to, for exactly that kind of scenario. And if, you know, the advice I can give them in an hour, you know, is stuff that I've learned Things like other people's money, learning to use other people's money. That, that transformed my journey when I'd had a handful. I'd run out of my own capital. I'd refinanced a couple of deals, bought another one. That's the typical route. That's, and that's the first thing you should do is make the most of what you've got. Refinance your existing portfolio. Build a bit of track record on your own the hard way. But then I kind of worked out the JVs. I did a JV with one of my, my current business partner um, in Redbrick. And we've gone on to build a, a huge portfolio together. Um, so I've done various JVs. We've lent money from people on a win-win return basis. Um, we work with loan notes and, and things like that to raise capital for the business um, where investment is secured. Hands off for those investors. Those are more hands-off investors. Um, and we secure that against our whole portfolio to go and develop it and add the value. So, yeah, there's there's kind of loads of tips like that that you can learn. But I certainly am learning every day. I, I go onto my building sites and, uh, you know, every level you grow – is different problems, there's different situations that come up. Um, you know, if you're doing a four bed HMO, it's very different doing a nine bed HMO and all the different sort of sui generis planning regulations, all the different higher level um, health and safety uh, regulations that the councils have to work with, um, especially with events like Grenfell that have come along, that's dramatically changed the construction industry, um, the HMO industry, everything is being affected and the ripple down effect of that. Um, we're having to put sprinklers in buildings we never used to have to, um, we're having to put AOVs, which are these kind of fire vent systems through the middle of buildings and out of windows that automatically open in the event of fire to evacuate smoke. Um, much higher standard of, of safety, which is brilliant. You know, it's a, it's a good thing. It's it's sad that a terrible event like Grenfell has to happen to, for these changes to take effect. But we are always learning in society and uh, property investing is no different. We're all learning. We all make mistakes. It's about how you adapt and change and, and overcome those mistakes as to what helps you become successful. Nick, what's your favourite part of HMO property investing? That's a good question. Um, I like two sides to it. I'm gonna, there's kind of twofold to that. There's the people side. I love working with people. 
I love working with, uh, you know, all the different trades. I love working with kind of running buildings with tenants and um, working with my team of people that I've built up over the years. And those kind of personal relationships, you know, any business is about people at the end of the day. It's a collection of people that do something, whether you're Richard Branson building, uh, you know, rocket ships um, or your little old us building HMOs in, in the Thames Valley. Um, you know, it, it's about people. And, I, and ultimately, if you put the wrong people in to do the wrong job, they'll mess it up. Um, if you, you know, don't lead in the right way, they're going to betray you or not do a good job for you. And it's about, you know, creating a brilliant team where everything in that team is, is a win-win and everyone's getting what they want out of relationship. Um, so, yeah, it's kind of about the people. And, and also the other side then um, is about creating. I love creating. I think I've always been a creator. I like music. So from my early days of uni, I was in bands at school. Um, uh, I did a bit of website design for a couple of years there throughout uni in the early years, my year out, I did their, their website design, I learned website design, working for the RAF um, military kind of um, base, working as a civvy over there. Um, I know you're an RAF man, weren't you, at one point? Back in the day, back in the day. Yeah, definitely, definitely. So um, we've both kind of had an experience of the, um, you know, working for the government, I guess, um, in the in the public sector. So um as much as that's interesting you get access to incredible stuff you know incredible machinery and technology and all this kind of stuff it's also quite restrictive you know it's almost a different form of the rat race you know you've got to conform to very strict set of rules um so i experienced that for a year in my year out and um i liked a lot of it i like that access to cool stuff you know we, we, we did sound tests on the Eurofighter and all sorts of amazing stuff stood sort of 10 meters away before this before that jet was released that was very cool and, and as a you know, I guess I was 20, 19, something like that. That was a cool experience. But then being myself, being the kind of out, you know, outward entrepreneur that I am, I, I found it quite restrictive as well, you know. So all these confidential documents, everything's got to be done a certain way. It's like I can't use my creative flair to go and, you know, do the way I think can be done better. I mean, no, I've got to do it this way. And that, that's the only way you can do it. So, um, yeah, it's kind of an interesting – I like creating. So I like going in turning a horrible building into a beautiful building and providing good quality accommodation at an affordable, sensible price for people that need it. It's a very rewarding experience. People and creating. Exactly. You know, so, so many people have that same, those same comments. Nick, we've talked about the past. Before we move on to your present and your future plans in the HMO property world, let's take a minute to thank our sponsors. Are you looking for an effortless HMO mortgage experience? If that's a yes, there's only one place to go. www.thehmomortgagebroker.co.uk The UK's number one specialist HMO mortgage broker. They're so specialised that they don't do anything else. HMO mortgages, HMO remortgages and HMO bridging. That's it. They have access to every HMO lender out there and even some exclusive products not available to other brokers. With lightning fast service and A1 communication, they're easily the best HMO broker in town. So to experience HMO lending made easy, go to www.thehmomortgagebroker.co.uk today. Nick, fast forwarding to the present day, go into a bit more detail for us about your current portfolio how big it is, the kind of where, where it is, the kind of tenants that you uh, that you like to service. Uh, just give us a good overview. 
Yeah, sure. Um, so at the moment in our main development companies called Redbrick, we, um, as I said earlier, we work with private investors to use their money alongside our own equity to go and build out development sites. We've kind of progressed. So um, as you would expect people to progress in their careers, um, as any investor progresses, we've gone from lots of HMOs and we've gone up to kind of what I'd describe as mega HMOs. So we've done a lot of office to residential conversions. I'd say we're definitely experts at those, um, converting disused, rundown offices that are too, uh, you know, um, expensive to put back to grade A offices. They can't compete with these grade A offices in town. And the government brought in the PD rules that I'm sure a lot of people will be aware of um, that allow um, permitted development rights to convert B1A offices back to residential. And there are other uh, industrial units now that have been given the same permitted development rights. So it's been a, a really key area of recycling property, which I like as well. It's very kind of, you know, eco-credentials. It's, it's, it's helping, um, you know, put housing back into the market from what was kind of disused rundown stock. So we've kind of, you know, progressed to that. We still do HMOs. We've got one under offer at the moment, which will hopefully be an 11, 12 bed HMO in, uh, in the center of Reading. Um, so we still do HMOs, still got a number of HMOs. We've probably got over 200 tenants now at last count um, with, a, with a couple of sites that finished this year. Um, we've got two, three sites under build. We've got a 12 bed HMO uh, that will be completing next month. We've got a block of 16 micro studio apartments in RG1 Centre of Reading um, that will be let to young professionals. We've got a block of 42 units completing in Newbury, Berkshire, which is just kind of one stop away from Reading. And of course, Crossrail is coming to Reading. Um, supposed to have been here a couple of years ago, but with all those delays, it's still not quite actually operating, which is a bit of a pain. But, you know, there's kind of been some uplift in the properties here. Certainly people moving to the area for the easy commute back into the centre of town. Um, so, yeah, I think we've probably I think our current portfolio um, is approaching very close to the 30 million mark now. Um, we've developed uh, in excess of probably another 15, 16 million um, on top of that. So in total, our development pipeline, what we own and what we've sold about, yeah, probably about 45, 46 million at last count, um, depending on which valuation you're using. Obviously, that's probably based on the last bank valuations we had. So it's fairly recent within the last couple of years. Some of those might be a little higher now some might be a little lower it depends on opinions and rents but rents have been doing well as we know you know we're in a booming rental market so we're only building properties that are there to be delivered for a, a you know savage rental market you know we've got 99 percent occupancy literally 99 percent, if not 100 percent. one or two rooms might come available for a week or two just to natural turnover so really our voids are just where we can't quite line up a tenant you know, on the day, they might maybe a week later, and sometimes you have to give a little bit there. So that's where the kind of 1% comes from. But there's so much demand. Um, if you're in a good area, in a good town, lots of young professionals, you know, our model is very much young professionals. We've tried a number of other strategies. So I have got experience with other strategies. Um, but we feel that for our, um, for our kind of lifestyle and um, ease of running our business, we like the young professional mo model because they stay a decent amount of time, you know, they'll say at least six months, maybe two or three years and, and the odd one longer. Tried some service accommodation stuff. We've done a few floors of buildings, kind of 10, 15 units at a time of service model. And we've kind of reverted to the professional model actually on, on those sites because it's so intensive. I think, you know, a bit of caution to anyone doing service accommodation model. It seems to have 
got very heated in the last couple of years with lots of people doing courses on it and lots of providers out there professing it's the best thing since sliced bread. But I find that you know quite a risky strategy. Um, you know, there's planning issues you've got to deal with. Um, there's all sorts of issues to get that property running and, and extremely high management. If you thought HMOs were high management, service accommodation is, is to the extreme. You know, you're running a hotel and it's a full-time business for every block that you do. So we ran a block or two for that, you know, for a while um, and just found, you know, with all the effort, it just wasn't worth the extra income, quite frankly. Um, you know, but I know a lot about it. I can help people that you know do want to learn about it if they need that. But ultimately, um, my underlying advice is to stick to something that's not quite so um, energy intensive and find a balance. And you know, HMOs are management intensive enough, aren't they? But um, the rewards are there, of course, for you know putting in the right system and working with the right agents. Um, so does that, that answer your question? I guess pretty much. It sure does. Nick, next, tell us about your single best HMO investment to date. It can be for the for the numbers. It can be for the money if you want, or it can be a specific project that you've really just loved doing. Yeah, give us your single best HMO investment to date. Well, interesting. I, okay, the one I'm going to use is it's twofold. It was the most difficult one we've ever done and the most stressful one, but then turned into the best one. And it ironically had the be- pretty much the best numbers, one of the best numbers. And that's why I look back on it as probably one of the sites that's taught me a lot. Um, so the situation was, it was a, a property, I'm not going to go into too many location specifics, just um, don't know who's watching from the council. Um, no, I'm kidding. But ultimately, it, this was a battle with the council. And it was one where we converted uh, uh, an ex-care home back into five HMO flats. Um, and we actually used a two-phase planning approach to it. So we got five C3 apartments done. We um, tenanted those as single C3 use um, for a period of time. And then we later used permitted development rights to convert from the C3 to C4. So we ended up with like five lots of six. Um, so about 30 lettable rooms. I think it was 29 at one point um, because one was slightly smaller. So, yeah, we kind of like 29 rooms um in the end which was fantastic um rough numbers i'm going to check them because it was a while ago so yeah we bought the property for a million that was right we bought it for a million um we spent probably a million on it from memory million a million one something like that we sold it for 3.8 million so you know there's some finance costs in there so we made well over a million pounds profit on that site um, which is incredible. So it's one of our one of the better sites, you know. It was almost a million and a half pounds on that site, which is incredible, just from one HMO. You know, it was a mega HMO, you know, 29 rooms. But because of the planning process, you know, it took some time to put that in, um, we were able to get such a huge uplift from the investment value, from all of that income that came in. It was in a really good area um, inside the M25, you know, a, a double on-street rooms renting for 850, 900 pounds a month. So, you know, times that by 29 rooms and you've got a significant amount of income coming in each month, which adds to the value that actually got bought of us by a kind of a housing operator, kind of a housing association style client. Um, and they would use it for C3 use for kind of, you know, it was, we built it to a professional spec um, and actually the tenant they were going to use it for was a lower spec. But I think that's a good tip, actually, is to you're better off over specking your units um, if you can afford to to a point, because then it opens up multiple exit options if you do a kind of a low low end kind of dss housing benefit style development 
you know, you're going to struggle to get young professionals or a higher grade corporate letter or any short term, any of that's ruled out. So I like to spec it to a higher spec. If we end up with a lower tenant because it works and the, the model's there, in this case, they bought it and we're using it for their rentals. Um, doesn't matter. You know, we might have spent 100 grand more on the build, but it secured a multitude of exits, which reduced our risk. So, yeah, I think the battle with the council there was they didn't like the C3 to C4 change of use. They hated that. They, they, you know, they came in and were like, no, you can't do that. You, you've built, you've gone straight to C4. And we said, no, we haven't gone straight to C4. We've implemented the C3 use for a good amount of time. Um, we've got legal opinions. We had to go to barristers to get legal opinions to back up the permitted development rights. Um, and interestingly, we had made some internal changes like extra on suites and things like that. And they didn't like that. They said, well, that wasn't in the planning application. It's like, well, we implemented the planning application and then we made subsequent internal changes, which are also permitted development. So I think they were just kind of annoyed that we had turned, you know, what they perceived as giving permission for five flats into five HMOs. Um, and, and I can understand that point of view. But the bottom line is um, we weren't doing anything untoward. We're above, above the books, as you always must be highly ethical um, in property. And in this scenario, we'd done nothing wrong and we, we beat them. We took a few months to sort of fight that argument and they backed down and said, OK, you're right. Um, and actually issued it with this lawful development certificate at the end of it. So that really taught me to stand up for yourself, to know what's right, get the right advice before you do anything. Um, you know, we knew we were right um, and we'd had all the advice that we were right. Um, it was just the council actually wasn't that educated on HMOs and HMOs are obviously becoming mainstream now whereas you know when i did my first hmo back in you know 2000 and subsequently 2002 started renting out rooms um you know no one knew about them and i've been you know say it's almost been 20 years i've been doing them now and but but now people understand them um but there's still that kind of cliche of them being you know not that well run and, and you know hovels and whatever and that's simply not true for the majority of people there's obviously a few bad eggs out there that run bad hmos but for the main part they're now becoming a real genuine um, part of the property cycle um, and part of the property piece that needs has got a place at the moment so um, yeah we won that one I was very proud of that it was one of the most stressful moments of my life for for a few months there um, had to really dig deep on all the the positivity and the, the goal setting and the visualization and all the tricks and tools and the meditation all that stuff that I kind of used to kind of keep my performance at peak um, I had to dig deep there just to stop me getting depressed and upset. That was a low point. So um, really good to overcome that in many ways, financially beating the council at something we knew had won and creating an incredible income generating building that served a purpose for that community at the same time. So sounds like a good deal to me. Was in the end. Yeah, it was touch and go at times. <laughs> Nick. Imagine the flip side, a couple of million invested and the council say no. You know, you can't rent out a single room or you can rent out five flats. It wasn't a good, it wasn't a good flip side, but worked out. You're there now. Nick, next up, tell us about one significant mistake that you've made in your HMO business on your HMO journey that by sharing, you might help other HMO investors avoid. God, there's so many. <laughs> um, there's not that many major ones. Um, thankfully, um, try and think of a few. I mean, give us your one in... most significant that you can just, just one good one. You're trying to stop me waffling on, aren't you? Um, <laughs> one significant one. One significant mistake. Okay. 
I would. Christ, is that, I'm not sure there is one. I mean, that's really tricky. That's really tricky. Okay, question. any HMO I'm mistakes? Perfect. I'm not perfect. I make lots of mistakes, but they're not that significant. They're, they're all overcomable, I guess. I think when you sit here, having overcome all these things, you kind of don't view them as significant. I guess that's that's kind of where I'm going with it. Um, you know, we've made it errors with with tenants. We made, okay. I've got one. Right, found one. Tenant London got away with twenty five grand's worth of rent. Sitting tenant knew every. It was a professional bad tenant. Um, he knew every trick in the book to get around eviction notices, get around um, the law uh, and the court procedure. You know, we took him to court several times to get eviction. Finally, it took us two years to do it and 25 grand of rent in the hole on one high end London warehouse apartment in, on the edge of Canary Wharf. That was um, the biggest issue I had. And the, and the, the mistake was well, there were several mistakes, but ultimately it was the same thing choosing a bad tenant was um, potentially probably not referencing him as rigorously as we could have. And we do now, obviously there was no guarantor in place. Um, And also using the right lawyers and eviction specialists from day one. So actually we made mistakes on a couple of the eviction notices. The eviction notices are extremely detailed. Well, they're not that detailed, but if you get one day wrong, and if you get the day wrong or, or, the, or the date wrong just by the, the night before or the timing in relation to a contract like your AST or whatever, one tiny little mistake throws the whole thing out of court. And that whole court period can take three or four months to get the court hearing. So you kind of can lose four or five months from a typo or a tiny error on an eviction notice. You know, we would serve these eviction notices ourselves thinking that's a cheap way to do it. Let's print it off the Internet, serve an eviction notice. Um, if you've done it enough and you know what you're doing which we now do, thankfully, learned really the hard way, you can do that. But if you really haven't done that a few times and you've learned those nuances that I've been lucky enough to learn, just get a professional to do it. Um, you know, for, for the sake of a couple of hundred quid, um, you might be a couple of months rent in the hole already and you're thinking, I don't want to lose any more, so I'll do this myself. I would say get the right legal advice, the right eviction specialist to do that process for you from day one because the, the, the carnage that can ensue if you haven't got that right um, you know, you have to, you know, what happened after several months, we had to completely reset the process and serve the notices all over again and go through the whole process again. Um, it was horrible. That's a good mistake to share. That's a really good mistake to share. Nick, tell, tell us that. Yeah, no, great example. Tell us about your HMO portfolio plans for the next 12 months. The next 12 months, we've got a deal. Um, I say it's going to be a, hopefully 11, 12 bed HMO under offer at the moment, hopefully exchanging on that. We are completing on our two current sites as well. So that's the 42 unit scheme in Newbury. Um, that will incidentally, um, it's good to talk numbers because I like to inspire people with what's possible. With that one, that'll bring in a gross rent of about 10 grand under half a million pounds a year. 490,000 is our projected gross rental income um, of 42 units. So, you know, Mega HMOs is kind of you know, a really exciting place to be um, and, and an inspiring place to be. You know, I, I, I get very excited by those kind of numbers because that kind of building can just create create you, you know, freedom and choice and wealth from one building. You know, that HMOs have the power if you get a good deal. Um, certainly a few of them, incredible deal. Um, yeah, we're looking around. We've got a good pipeline. You know, we've got more deals than we can satisfy with the capital we've got. So we're, we're still looking for investors, hands-off investors that want to invest with us and kind of share in the, 
the, the income. We pay good rates of return to investors to work with us. Uh, we've got an extremely good track record of delivering these sites, as, as you can probably see. I can give tours to people that are interested in working with us. So, yeah, we're um, growing the portfolio from probably two to three deals a year. We want to be doing four or five of these kind of deals a year now. We've got the capacity. We've got the team. It's natural progression for us at our level. Just take another step up and just grow slightly more. You know, it's important not to overstretch yourself. We've grown very organically over these 20 years. You know, if you're talking three deals a year, it doesn't sound a lot, but these are quite big deals. Um, and it's good to not have all your eggs in one basket. Um, so, yeah, just acquiring a couple more sites, keeping going, keeping building. Great. And what about apart from building up the portfolio? Is there anything else you're up to in property that you'd like to share with HMO Nation? Um, yeah, I mean, I'd love to. I'd love to share some of the, kind of the stuff I'm doing. So I mentioned it a little bit earlier. I've got uh, Four Dummies book out. It's Investing in International Real Estate for Dummies. It's the only uh, property investment book that isn't kind of a self-published book from local people in the in the industry. This is a globally released book in every UK, um, every English-speaking uh, Wiley. Wiley's the publisher country in the world. So I'm extremely proud of that. It's a huge book. Um, chapter 13, massive amount of stuff on HMOs in there. Covers things like lease options, rent to rent, serviced accommodations in there, um, developing properties, mindset strategies. I touched upon a moment ago, all the stuff about, you know, goal setting, visualization, meditation, all that kind of stuff that I believe underpins a successful person. And we're just in the property world. And I believe to be successful in the property world, it's important to pull out all of those techniques and strategies that successful people before us have used. I believe success can be taught. It's a teachable subject. It's something that if you apply yourself with the knowledge you've got, um, you can you can replicate success. And I, I believe that wholeheartedly. And um, that's what I do with my mentoring. So the other part of my journey that I'm really enjoying is taking on a, a small number of mentoring clients to kind of share the journey with and help get them going quickly so that they're not kind of um, you know, falling in some of the early pitfalls that I've done or some of the pitfalls I do now. And as I grow in my career and do a different level of development, these people, you know, the, these clients will come up with me and, and learn as well. So that's something really exciting that I'm enjoying giving back. Um, but also propertyforum.com is a great resource such as HMO Hub. We give good education and it's, you know, we've collaborated on a few things before and I'm looking forward to collaborating on lots more stuff. But it's about giving, you know, giving people that, that leg up, that starting point to kind of, you know, get a free ebook on, on a certain subject because it's free. Go and get your education to a certain point for free on the Internet in this kind of education funnel. Be a sponge, read every book, learn everything you can, chat to people on forums, then buy, buy all the books that are out there. Because, you know, what? you get one piece of nugget from one book. The whole book's been worth it. That's my view. That's why I've read so many books in my time. Um, and I kind of I've pieced together my formula for success, if you will, from reading all these nuggets and pulling, you know, these bits from here and here. And, and, and I've applied it and I've proven it works. You know, I've proven you can become successful by learning it. And I'm very lucky to be in and I'm very grateful to be in the position I am that I have been able to prove it. It could have gone wrong. It might not have worked. But I think that's testament to the fact that this stuff can be taught. It can be learned. Um, it's just a matter of going out there, picking the right people to work with. And, and learning it and applying yourself in the right way. Uh, Nick, what advice, what one bit of advice would you give any current HMO investors? That's people who are already in the HMO game. I would say, the, I mean, I'm telling people to suck eggs here and I, and I hope it doesn't come across um, badly, but it's, it's a case of really staying up with the regulations. The regula regulations are changing all the time. I would say, Probably the most important piece of advice is to go and get a new fire 
uh, fire strategy, a new fire um, safety check on your property um, and a risk assessment, fire risk assessment. Make sure you're up to speed on all of that stuff because regs are changing and you might have been caught out by that. Don't rely on the council and the HMO license every five years to, to remind you. Um, there is stuff in there that you should be doing probably more regularly. Get a professional company to do it if you possibly can um, and just look after your tenants. Make sure that you are providing an excellent service because the customer is important. It's the same in any industry. Um, look after your customer and they'll look after you. Great. And how about any advice you'd give to people looking to get into HMO property investing for the very first time? I would say don't jump in too quickly. Um, do your education. And I don't want to harp on about my education funnel, but I, to me, it's hugely important. It's the path I've taken. Um, I went to all the free seminars. I read every book out there. I re was on every forum asking questions and soaking stuff up. But you, you, I always say you don't know what you don't know. So you might have done all that, but you don't know what you don't know. And that might not be in the Internet. If you're not asking the right question, you're not going to get the right answer. So, you know, education and learning is critical um, in, in any industry. HMOs is no different. So work with people that have done it. Go and see their sites, get tours of sites, learn everything there is to learn and, you know, get the right um, team around you, get the right solicitors to do the due diligence on that side, um, get the right brokers that have got you know, a lot of experience in, in HMOs um, and use, use the right power team. And that will reduce your risk to get going. But certainly start with the education for a period of time. Get down that funnel to a way till you're comfortable, until um, you've got the right advisors, right mentors, right uh, team around you. And then you're probably in a sensible place to make a, make a leap into your first deal. Um, and, you know, don't go too too big on it. Don't go too crazy. Don't go too much planning risk in the first deal. Just go for a simple kind of four bed property that, you know, you can take up to a six bed under PD permitted development. Um, get that license. That's a pretty safe deal to do as a first deal. And you should have enough income from that that a couple of those rooms will be your be your profit margin each month. So, you know, start on a sensible size, grow organically, grow as your knowledge grows and don't jump in too fast because, Cash is king. If you run out of cash, if your cash flow dries up, you're bust. And that's not where anyone wants to be. So grow at a sensible rate. Absolutely right. Nick, before we sign off, we'd like you to recommend one great HMO resource or book. Got a funny feeling I know which one that's going to be. Then let HMO Nation know how they can connect with you. And then we'll say goodbye. Cool. Okay. Well, there's lots of good books out there. I'm not just going to pitch my own book. It's a case of getting every book that's on the market. I, I would say there's no one book that you need to read in property. Go every property book out there, just buy it because it's that one nugget in every book um, that you need to get. There's plenty of nuggets in my book. The whole chapter 13 is a chunky chapter um, is all about HMOs. There's all about finance in other chapters that relates to HMOs. This is written as a niche strategy book in property. And it's my entire 20 years knowledge in that book. So you'll pick up a huge amount of nuggets on there. Certainly enough to take you going into your into your next direction and, and further your knowledge further. You know, so books are cheap. They're like 15 quid. So go and buy a load of books and learn everything you possibly can. Um, everyone connect, can, can connect with me at nicholaswoolwork.com. That's my main website for all of my brands. So from there, you'll be able to spearhead off. You better find where to buy the books on Amazon and anywhere books are sold as a good starting point, you can find Property Forum at propertyforum.com. So I would say they're the main resources where people can get some good free education, lots of free books, lots of good stuff to get them going. 
great stuff. We'll make sure we link up everything in your show notes page, Nick. Nick, thank you for sharing your journey. We salute you. Let's get an HMO high five. <laughs> and we'll see you again soon. Thanks, Thanks Nick. Appreciate it. All right. Thank you. Thanks for joining us. If you've enjoyed this and want more informational, educational and inspirational HMO property content, then please hit the subscribe button and give us a like. See you next time.